Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We apologize to our witnesses. We had a, a photograph with 100 senators. There's always three or four that don't show until long before it's supposed to, long after it's supposed to start. And then we had a business meeting that went for a while, but thank you so much for being here. Today we're going to continue a series of hearings to examine the executive's authorities with respect to war making, the use of nuclear weapons, and from a diplomatic perspective, entering into and terminating agreements with other countries. We're here today to discuss the shared authority over international accords, an issue of fundamental importance to our national interest and separation of powers. Let me be clear, this is not about, not about any effort to constrain the inherent powers of the President with respect to diplomacy. Our nation must speak with one voice in diplomatic affairs, and under our Constitution, the President determines U.S. foreign policy. But Congress plays a vital role in providing advice and consent on treaties and authorizing U.S. participation and international agreements that shape our foreign policy. Our founders understood the danger of entrusting too much of this power to the President alone, and the Constitution clearly provides for a shared authority to enter into binding international agreements. The House and Senate play an indispensable role in enacting legislation that provides the President with a domestic legal basis for fulfilling our international commitments. And with respect to agreements that rise to the level of a treaty, the Senate has a unique constitutional role in approving treaties. Therefore, we must be active participants in the process. Through the years, the President from both parties, presidents from both parties have increasingly abused their authority to enter into and terminate binding international agreements with little input from Congress. To avoid further ceding of our authority to the executive branch, we must fulfill our constitutional role as partners in this effort and be vigilant in our oversight responsibilities. This challenge is greater than ever before. As Professor Bradley will note in his testimony, more than 90% of the thousands of binding, binding international agreements entered into by the United States over the last 80 years have not been treaties, but various forms of executive agreements. We are stronger internationally when the President and Congress work together. Unilateral, unilateral presidential action without meaningful congressional partner undermines our national strength. For that reason, I hope this committee will work in a bipartisan way to ensure that the Senate will uphold its constitutional role in the process of making international agreements. We must work in partnership with the President when we can, and we must ready to be ready to defend the rights and obligations of the Senate when necessary. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, as you know, we, we get opening statements that are sometimes prepared by our staff, and I think this one is particularly appropriate, so I'm going to ask consent that the entire, my entire opening statement be put in the record because it gives in detail some of my uh, concerns, and let me summarize very briefly so we can get okay. to the witnesses. We point out that the number of treaties that we have entered into as a nation, as a percentage of our na national uh, agreements entered into uh, by our country, between 1789 and 1939, 66% of all foreign agreements were treaties. Between 1980 and 2000, that dropped to 12%, and that number is even lower today. So we've seen the, law, the, the disuse of treaties as a manner in which to enter into international agreements, and that involves the Congress. And I've been told 
that it was pretty common for members of the Senate to be part of the negotiating teams on treaties to, to assist in the relationship between the executive branch and the Senate, which makes sense. And we're not doing that today. So when the President of the United States looks at Congress in the consideration of treaties today, sees the law of the sea that cannot be ratified by the United States Senate, sees the rights of persons with disabilities not being able to be ratified by the United States Senate, which I, to this day, cannot determine any controversy at all in regards to that treaty, we can understand why the president will choose to use a method other than a treaty in order to enter into international agreements, which compromises the appropriate role of the United States Senate, something that we should be very concerned about. So the president, when he wanted to enter into a climate agreement, he chose an executive agreement rather than a treaty. When he wanted to enter into an agreement with the international community on Iran, he chose an inter uh, executive agreement rather than a treaty. Why? Because he couldn't get it ratified in the United States Senate under any scenario. It wasn't this agreement, it's anything. We can't even get tax treaties ratified by the Senate that are there to help us. You talk about tax reform, we can't get tax treaties passed because one member decides to hold up the process? So we got problems, and now we have a president who wants to withdraw from international agreements, whether they are agreements like the JCPOA or they are tra trade agreements. And I must tell you, quite frankly, I've been on this in the Congress for a long time when we've uh, gone over the, the congressional role in trade agreements, and there's a formal process under the Trade Promotional Authority. And yes, we go over the withdrawal procedures, but we never thought we'd run into a president who would be using the withdrawal as this president has done in a manner which is really contrary to us being involved in the process. Now, we've taken some action. NARA was an example where Congress decided that it was going to do something about executive agreements, and I think we did the right thing in NARA in regards to the JCPOA. But I think this hearing is particularly important so we have a chance to talk about reestablishing the appropriate role for the United States Senate as it relates to executive agreements. And I thank our two witnesses for being here. They both have great uh, uh, expertise here. Uh, I'm interested in, in, in Abel, how, how you were able to get so many treaties ratified with, with uh, 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 we, I think you have a record in modern times, so maybe you can give us an idea how that was done. But I, I welcome both of our witnesses here today. And I'll formally Senator welcome Mendes. them. Our first, go ahead. Mr. I'm sorry. Mr. Chairman, at, at the appropriate point, as I had asked you before you started, I'd just like to make a brief comment about the resolution that I wasn't able to get to. I think uh, now would be a very appropriate time. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and very briefly, thank I, you for reminding me of that. Yeah, thank you. no, I, I thank, I appreciate it. So I, I, I didn't go. I had a, an amendment in, in banking, and then I was told that the chair's preference was to have remarks made here, so I didn't get over to the markup. Uh, so I appreciate the moment. And I feel really compelled about this. This is a resolution that I used to carry before I became chairman of the committee, and then Bob Casey did with others. And it's the resolution on the protection uh, of freedom of the press and expression around the world uh, and reaffirming uh, the freedom of the press as a priority in the efforts of the United States government to promote democracy and good governance. And, you know, normally that was an expression of our commitment to that fundamental bedrock principle enshrined in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States as a global effort. But I have to be honest with you. I am really concerned, really concerned, when I see that last month CNN reported on live auctions of human beings, something that I know the chairman cares passionately about by his work on 
work on human trafficking, and active slave trade in Libya. And the news network showed footage of human beings being sold at auction, which is a stain in our collective consciousness. But adding to this atrocity last week, Libyan authorities questioned the veracity of the reports, citing the president of the United States who calls CNN fake news. Now listen, I've had my share of over 43 years of public service and not being enthralled by some of the press reports and how they ultimately carried themselves. But I believe in the fundamental bedrock principle of a free press. And when we are in the league of individuals like Maduro in Venezuela and Putin in Russia, uh, who constantly try to undermine the essence of a free press in their countries in order to promote uh, their uh, dictatorial, uh, autocratic views, it really worries me. It worries me uh, that attacking the press is one of the most frequently used instruments in a dictator's toolbox. Uh, that the fourth estate, in my mind, plays a crucial role in our democracy and all over the world. So its advocacy for it as independent and critical are, are, are really important. And then finally, I am really shocked that for the first time, the first time, the Committee to Protect Journalists, an organization dedicated to protecting journalists doing critically important work to hold public officials accountable and uncover stories and expose the world to critical events, has concerns about the United States. I never thought that I'd be at a moment in time in which the Committee to Protect Journalists would cite the United States as a place that they have concerns about. So uh, I appreciate that the chairman put this resolution on. I know he's committed to it. I think it's important not only to pass the resolution, but to speak to these issues, because I don't want to be in the company of Putin and Maduro. Uh, I don't want the committee uh, to protect journalists to cite the United States as a place they now have concern on. Uh, and I, I think it is important when we are facing human trafficking in the world, when we are facing those who have efforts to use nuclear weapons, uh, that the credibility that we have in having journalists question in those countries what is happening in those countries not be undermined. And I appreciate the opportunity. No, thank to you. That. Thank you so much and for those important comments, and I appreciate your work in this area. Um, our first witness is Mr. Curtis Bradley, the William Van Allistine, professor of law and professor of public policy studies at Duke University. Professor Bradley has written extensively on the authorities of the Senate in making treaties and the importance of cooperation between the branches. I want to thank you not only for being here, but your help in the past. Our second witness is the Honorable Averill D. Haynes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Ms. Haynes has an extensive resume that includes serving as Deputy Chief Counsel for this committee. So thank you for being here. If you would uh, give your opening comments, you've done this before, I know, uh, in about five minutes, your written, any written materials will be entered into the record without Thanks, objection, and then we'll proceed with questions. But in the order, introduce Mr. Bradley. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. Uh, my remarks are going to be focused on what I see as the need for more oversight and involvement by both the Senate and the full Congress and how this country makes and uh, to some extent and at times withdraws from international commitments. Uh, the only process that the Constitution specifies for making international commitments is the one that's set forth in Article 2, uh, pursuant to which presidents are supposed to seek the advice and consent of two-thirds of the Senate. And part of the founders' idea uh, behind requiring legislative involvement in addition to the executive 
branch was the thought that international commitments can have important and long-term consequences for the United States and thus should be determined and uh, considered by both political branches. For a variety of reasons and complicated reasons uh, and historical reasons, the Article II process is not used for the vast majority of international agreements today. As Senator Corker noted at the outset, uh, over 90% of binding international agreements that the United States has made for decades are made through other processes, uh, what we call executive agreements. Some of these executive agreements are made with the full participation of the Congress, the majority of the Congress, congressional executive agreements. And the ones that involve Congress looking at an agreement after it's been negotiated, reviewing the content of the agreement, and deciding whether it's in the national interest, do involve collaboration, obviously, between the two branches of government. They are a tiny fraction of the executive agreements that are made. Uh, many congressional executive agreements, vast majority in fact, are made by the president based on often old statutes, statutory delegations that may date back many decades ago, and those agreements are not presented back to the legislative uh, branch. Presidents also sometimes make agreements without any legislative uh, participation, even at the front end, uh, these so-called sole executive agreements. Supposedly, uh, presidents are, are, should do that only when these agreements relate to their own independent constitutional authority. As I discuss in a forthcoming uh, Law Review article, increasingly, and I'm not speaking about any particular presidential administration, but presidents in general have concluded more agreements without any legislative involvement and at times without any real claim that they have independent constitutional authority in the area, whether it be the environment or intellectual property or commerce, those are not independent presidential powers. Those are powers very much uh, part of legislative authority. And I think this development, uh, if left unchecked, is problematic from the separation of power standpoint. Uh, we also have seen a rise in so-called political commitments. Uh, presidents have long made diplomatic promises and often, I think, unproblematically. We have seen a greater use of them in recent years combined with uh, the use of statutory authority to make agreements that I think in the past would have been concluded with the participation of the Senate or the Congress and that are now being done more unilaterally. The increased unilateralism also extends to the termination or withdrawal from agreements as well. Uh, the Constitution does not tell us exactly how this process of withdrawing from agreement should occur. But in the 19th century, I've looked at the history, and Congress was a frequent partner in those decisions. And that has been much less the case uh, since the 20th century. In my written testimony, I suggest some uh, things that Congress should at least consider uh, to be a more collaborative partner in the international lawmaking that the United States engages in. A first step, I think a, a very good step, and one that Congress has considered before and made some progress on before is simply more transparency, uh, having more information from the executive branch about what it's doing so that Congress can evaluate it and respond if necessary. The Case Act in 1972 was a major enactment in this area and has led to more transparency with respect to agreements that don't go through the Senate process. But there are many deficiencies in the Case Act reporting that have still not been remedied. To take one example, uh, there is no public reporting of the executive branch's claims 
about why it's able to conclude some of these agreements without going to the Senate. Some of that information is provided to Congress, I think often cryptically, without a lot of detail. But in any event, if it were publicly provided, uh, there would be more uh, people watching uh, those claims. And I think Congress itself would get better information from the executive branch if we had public disclosure, just like we do for lots of areas of domestic law. And I give additional examples in my written testimony of ways to increase transparency for political commitments and treaty terminations, and also some actions that Congress could take if it wanted to do more, such as by revisiting some of these many open-ended delegations of authority that uh, leads to a lot of the agreements uh, that never come back to the legislative branch. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today and frankly for convening a treaty hearing on, or a hearing rather, on a subject that I happen to believe is of critical importance to the foreign policy and national security of the United States, but is really focused on in earnest. I'm particularly honored to be here for the reason that you mentioned earlier, which is having served this committee previously for many years ago and having had the honor to brief members on various treaties in advance of hearings in the past. And I felt lucky to have a chance to serve the committee then, and I feel the same way today. So although this will be obvious to all of you, I think it bears repeating at the outset that treaties, whether advice and consent treaties or otherwise, are absolutely essential enablers of U.S. foreign policy that have helped us meet the challenges we face as a country and take advantage of the key opportunities for our prosperity. And I think it's worth repeating because though the committee has a good appreciation of this fact, I found that over the course of my career, the public conversation about treaties has really changed. And I think the change is at least partially responsible for the diminished role of Congress in relation to international agreements and the challenges associated with the United States joining advice and consent treaties generally, particularly treaties that should be routine, such as tax treaties. And I also worry that the current administration's approach to treaties and international law may serve to undermine the international legal order we helped build on a bipartisan basis over the history of our country, one that, in my view, is critical to our security, our prosperity, and our values. Treaties were at one time revered as instruments of foreign policy to be used in service of our country's interests, but instead they are now often perceived negatively without respect to their content, perhaps most popularly as illegitimate illegitimate constraints on our sovereignty. And I would never argue that all treaties are in the interest of the United States to join. Treaties have to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. But the argument should be focused on the content and not on treaties generally. For the ability of the United States to negotiate and join treaties is absolutely essential to our interests. Far more than people realize, treaties have helped us improve the lives of everyday citizens and we need them now more than ever in this increasingly complex mobile world. So when you want to call or email or even send a letter to a friend living abroad, you're able to do so thanks to rules established in treaties. And one of the reasons you can feel reasonably safe when getting on commercial flights in countries around the world is that ICAO, an organization established by treaty, basically issues safety standards. Treaties help improve the quality of our air and ensure that food imported from abroad doesn't make us sick. Treaties help American businesses operate and export their products to foreign markets, protect the intellectual property of American innovators, and bilateral tax treaties make it so that U.S. companies with an overseas presence are not subject to double taxation. Yet despite what I view to be the growing importance of treaties, as you mentioned at the outset of this hearing, the Senate is finding it harder and harder to deliberate on and improve treaties. 
Since 1960, the U.S. Senate has approved ratification of over 800 treaties, a rate of more than one treaty every month. And between 1995 and 2000, when President Clinton was in office and Jesse Helms chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Senate approved over 140 treaties, or an average of 23 treaties a year, including Chemical Weapons Convention, the START Treaty, treaties dealing with labor rights, law enforcement cooperation, environmental protection, investment protection. But since 2009, the Senate has provided advice and consent to just 21 treaties, or roughly 2.3 treaties per year, a fraction of the historical average. And I know this committee has tried to reverse that trend, but the structural and political challenges are really quite formidable. And I'd argue that the practical implications of not being able to get even routine treaties approved by the Senate are really very significant. First of all, there's no question that over time the degree of congressional involvement in treaties throughout their life has been reduced, and this isn't good for our democracy, our prosperity, our foreign affairs, our national security. And although a number of international agreements that are not advice and consent treaties are based on statutory authorizations, the vast majority, as has been noted, of international agreements are concluded without the involvement of or even the barest consultation with Congress. And to do otherwise may be impractical given the number of international agreements that are and should be concluded on an annual basis, but I think it's fair to say that the balance is not what it should be, and this is particularly true in today's complex and internationally mobile world in which what we do on the domestic plane and what we do internationally is increasingly intertwined. Specifically, congressional involvement, and particularly the Senate's involvement, would likely enhance the legitimacy of international agreements from a domestic perspective, it would enhance the legitimacy and lasting nature of our commitments to foreign governments, and congressional involvement would allow for greater deliberation regarding the interaction of international law and domestic law, hopefully with the result of greater compatibility and mutual reinforcement between the two. And congressional involvement and more public debate would enhance the accountability of the executive branch in treaty making. Second, if it remains as difficult as it is today to provide the advice and consent of the Senate for routine treaties, we may lose the ability to negotiate and enter into certain critical international agreements that historically have been understood to be agreements that require the advice and consent of the Senate, such as extradition treaties, boundary treaties, mutual legal assistance treaties, tax treaties, all treaties that are viewed on a bipartisan basis as critical to U.S. interests. Third, at a time when multinational intergovernmental organizations that serve our interests abroad and are at home struggling in need of reform, we have made it increasingly difficult to negotiate changes to their underlying authorities because many of these are based on treaties that get the advice and consent of the Senate. And fourth, because Congress is less involved, we're feeding the perception that international law is not critically important to the United States and the obligations we undertake are ones that do not endure from administration to administration. So the harder question, of course, is what do you do about this? And I've provided in my submitted testimony some recommendations on that, many of which overlap with what uh, Mr. Bradley's recommendations are, particularly on the transparency front. And then additionally, I indicate that I think it might be worth looking at the Senate Rules of Procedure for considering treaties, see if there isn't a way to improve the ability, essentially, of getting overcoming essentially when one or two senators have an issue to at least get to a vote and a consideration of the treaties. And third, I'd recommend establishing an annual report and hearing from the Legal Advisor's Office on the U.S. Department of State regarding international agreements, their development and interpretation. I think it could provide the committee with an opportunity, among other things, to engage on issues of particular interest, including trends in treaty making, and while simultaneously raising the profile, frankly, of these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
Thank you both very much. Senator Cardin. I thank both of you for your testimony. And I mean, you really raised the key issue. By definition, most treaties involve some degree of giving up sovereignty because it is an effort to develop a, a, a more universal standard rather than a one country standard. So some treaties don't fall into that category, but most do. The second problem where one senator or a few senators can block the consideration is not unique to treaties. It's most of congressional Senate work. But for treaties, you need a two-thirds vote. So there is an argument made that we could look at a different procedural process for treaties because of the higher threshold. So these are the challenges we have. Um, but I, I'm just not optimistic and I'm, I'm curious how, how you were over, able to overcome some of the more uh, sovereign adverse members' views on taking up treaties while we, when you were successful in getting so many done, whether you think there's anything we can learn from that in today's political environment. Was there a particular argument that could be used to advance some treaties um, that we're not using today? Honestly, I don't know that there's a particular argument that you're not using that could be used. I would say, though, that it's become increasingly hard to have a public conversation about these issues that is honest and, um, and nuanced. So, for example, as you say, one of the issues is the sovereignty question, right? And when we went through the 110th Congress and we did so many treaties, that issue was raised in the context of the Law of the Sea Convention. And one of the principal concerns about the Law of the Sea Convention was the dispute resolution mechanism, right? Which was perceived as a particular sovereignty concern as opposed to general treaties without presumably such dispute resolution uh, mechanisms. And yet, all of the tax treaties have dispute resolution mechanisms in them that we passed during that same Congress. And none of those issues were raised in relation to them. And in fact, the tax treaty mechanism is really unusual insofar as uh, the dispute resolution mechanism is binding on both states when you go to tax treaty uh, dispute resolution, but the individual can opt out of the decision. So it's a rather, you know, it's even more presumably concerning from a sovereignty perspective if that's the issue. The, my point being that it's not clear to me that sovereignty really is the issue. No. It's a proxy for a concern that I think it's harder to get to an honest conversation about. And, uh, and I do think you're right on the issue of the fact that it's, um, there is an argument to be made given that two-thirds are required that the uh, amount of debate foreclosure could be smaller. It's just a very tough, uh, I recognize it's a high bar to clear to change the procedure on this. As I understand, we really do still need a cloture vote even though the cloture vote is below the uh, two-thirds. Mr. Bradley, let me ask you this. Is Congress at fault here in some of the statutes we passed? When we passed the Inara statute in regards to the Iran nuclear agreement, we looked at our review statute from the point of view of an overzealous president and a reluctant Congress. Boy, are we wrong about that today. So you things change. Uh, should Congress have been more astute in drafting that statute, looking at future administrations? When we draft, drafted trade promotional authority, 
I don't think anyone, uh, this is something the president was going to do, the executive was going to enter into. So we looked at putting restraints on the president in entering into an agreement, but never thought about withdrawing from an agreement, having congressional role. Should we draft TPA authority differently so that there is a continuing role for Congress if a president decides he wants to withdraw from a trade agreement? Uh, thank you, Senator. And just to say one word about the last uh, dialogue that you had, I, of course, also agree that treaties are often in the U.S. national interest. We're a party to thousands of treaties. We often uh, benefit tremendously from treaties. And I agree with the comment that the mere uh, argument about sovereignty should not itself really be a reason not to think about uh, creating agreements. Um, my last time I was before this committee, I think, was about four years ago testifying about the Disabilities Convention, which was, had uh, some controversies associated with it. And one of the things I think we were trying to work out was whether uh, the Senate could craft some reservations and other qualifications to, to address some issues. And I thought that was a, a good conversation to have at that particular time. I do, I would like to point out, sometimes on the other side of the debate, I hear people say, we need to join a treaty because all these other countries have joined the treaty. And I, I think that's equally unpersuasive just because other countries have seen fit to sign on. Some of those countries don't have real court systems or they don't actually comply with the treaties or their values might be different from ours. And I don't think that's enough of an argument for why the United States should join, particularly some of the more sensitive agreements. Um, and I, there are times when some of the committees under these treaties have not helped the case by asserting jurisdiction that the United States certainly never thought it was signing up for at the front end, and it's made it more difficult to get some of the other agreements through. So it's a, it's a more complicated story. On the issue of Congress, I do think uh, we should not simply blame the executive for being uh, aggrandizing authority and concluding things unilaterally. Uh, Congress is a major player in this area, and it passed many statutes in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s in, a in very different times, uh, in very open-ended ways. One of the suggestions in my testimony is it may be worth doing a review of some of those statutes to see if they need to be updated, made more specific. I'm a fan myself of sunset provisions, which are often not included, and I think those are ways that, that get Congress back into looking at uh, statutes that it passes uh, later in time. I'm a fan of the Inara statute. I do think that intervention did allow Congress to have a, a closer collaborative look at the Iran deal, and I would favor more uh, actions like that. Um, as for termination of agreements, I, my own view, and the executive branch lawyers would probably disagree with me, uh, is that Congress certainly could limit in its statutes, in the trade statutes or otherwise, uh, the executive's use of the withdrawal clauses in uh, the trade agreements, or in my view, Congress could do that for other agreements as well. I, I think Congress should be cautious because it may be in the U.S. interest to have flexibility in, for example, if there's a material breach of a treaty, I'm not sure you want your president hamstrung and the other party saying, good luck getting your Congress to agree to let you out of that agreement. I think that might hurt American interests. But there may be times when Congress will want to put some conditions in, say in the trade promotion statutes. In my view, those would be perfectly constitutional and uh, would require then the president to follow whatever, whether it be procedural requirements of reporting to Congress or substantive requirements of actually getting a new vote in Congress, I think those would be perfectly valid measures. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. Um, I was recently in Halifax for the Security Forum, and as you might imagine, one of the things that I heard a lot of concern about was the President's um, 
threat to withdraw from NAFTA and the ongoing negotiations. Um, I wonder if you could help us clarify, given that NAFTA was ratified by the Senate and that there would be profound implications for people not, for millions of Americans, not to mention the rest of North America. Can you talk about what role Congress should have in any decision or what role it has in withdrawing from NAFTA? What's the mechanism? So NAFTA was not actually uh, given the advice and consent of the Senate. It was approved through a congressional process. And uh, and in in point of fact, and I think as, as uh, Mr. Bradley was indicating, I, um, the statutory structure for trade agreements currently does not provide for uh, or does not indicate that it's required that the president essentially come back to the Congress to get agreement before he withdraws. And so the process would essentially be that the president would withdraw in accordance with the termination clause or the withdrawal clause within the treaty. What I do think um, is possible is, I agree with Mr. Redley that I think it's possible that you could pass legislation, for example, that would require some kind of consultation or do some kind of uh, um, notification requirement at the very least, things along those lines that would be part of it. In the trade uh, legislation more generally, there are clauses that relate to termination or withdrawal, and they tend to go to things along the lines, as I understand it, is a sort of a notice requirement, and then a, a but after the fact, and one that uh, indicates that the president has to tell you what it is that they think is the right thing for the tariffs to be dealt with after um, you know the trade agreement is ended. So, uh, so one could imagine beefing that up to some extent. But this is an area where obviously the Congress has an enormous amount of power and is authorized to deal with foreign commerce. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think, you know, and it's also an area where frankly, from a congressional perspective, Congress has been more effective at getting involved in the negotiations and using the leverage that it has to bring the executive branch in more closely. I think you could take advantage of that. I do think, you know, having been a former staffer of this committee, it's true that one of the, the difficulties is that uh, you're responsible for foreign affairs in this committee, but you do have a lot of other committees when they're dealing with congressional executives doing those things. So I think that's also just a piece of this that pull these together. Do you have anything to add, Mr. Bradley, to that? Uh, thank you. I largely agree with uh, Ms. Haynes on this issue. It, uh, the issue of, and I, it has become controversial again, the issue of presidents potentially pulling the U.S. out of agreements without going back to the legislature. It has been controversial before, most famously over the debate over uh, President Carter's uh, withdrawal from the Taiwan Treaty in the 1970s when he recognized mainland China. And there were a number of senators quite concerned about it and litigation that went all the way to the Supreme Court the courts have not resolved the question of whether presidents can act on their own. But it does highlight an issue that I think should be of concern to both parties in the Senate and to Congress, which is, and I, and I, I should point out, I worked in the executive branch. I'm quite sensitive to the concerns of the executive in foreign affairs. I worked in the State Department. But it is a fact that uh, the more the executive acts in certain kinds of ways, uh, they set precedent that I think ends up mattering um, in terms of their own claims of authority and also if it does get litigated, uh, the claims that they'll be able to make in court. And that's true in this area. In the termination of treaties area, really all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt, uh, presidents have asserted the authority to act 
to uh, decide whether the United States withdraws, even from very significant commitments. And Congress, for the most part, has not resisted these claims. The Taiwan event is, a, is, a, is unusual in that regard. There have been several dozen treaty terminations since then, all done in, often not dramatically and not necessarily high-profile events, but by the executive on their own. And if this is something, uh, I think this is something Congress should pay attention to because the more these events accrue, the harder it is, uh, I think, as a legal matter to argue that the executive uh, is required to come back to Congress. I do agree, though, if, if Congress writes that in specifically, that it should be binding on the president. Um, Ms. Haynes, in your testimony, you talked about being concerned that the current administration's approach to treaties and international law may actually undermine the legal order that we help build. Can you talk about what happens internationally if that, in fact, is the result? What happens to all of those countries that we might want to get to engage with us in the future? Yeah, maybe I can just make a few points. Yeah, just briefly. Absolutely. So I, I think um, there are a number of issues that are worth thinking about in this context. One is the international order, from my perspective, uh, is one that really serves the United States, as you indicated, and, uh, and one that helps us not just sort of address, um, you know, sort of bring our thinking to the world, but also allows us to address uh, threats and issues such as Ebola, for example. When it's you know on its way to the United States, we relied on the World Health Organization to help us. When we're talking about financial disasters in different places, we rely on the IMF and the World Bank, all of which have been done by treaty. But, um, but if we start to pull back, and if we are not, in fact, engaging on these issues, we can't help those organizations reform, and they do need to be reformed. And I think that's something that there is bipartisan mm -hmm. support for in an essence. But we can't actually engage in reforming them if we can't actually change those agreements, if we don't engage, if we don't bring them back, and we actually get them approved. So that's an example of the kind of thing that, that we might perceive. I think it's also true that, uh, you know, through these types of mechanisms, we have managed to have an outsized influence on issues where we've wanted to and needed to. And, uh, and if we allow other actors to dominate, such as China in a variety of scenarios, we're going to lose some of our influence and we're going to be, again, on the retreat on issues. Finally, I think another piece of this is, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, obviously, on national security issues. One of the big things that we look at are asymmetric threats that the United States faces on a variety of fronts, whether it's cyber, whether it's uh, in space or in the context of even migration or other places. And one of the ways we have been able to address asymmetric threats is through an international legal order. And a perfect example of this is the law of the sea, where we engaged and we developed rules of the road for freedom of navigation. That freedom of navigation is something we rely on for our military, for our trade, across the board. We can't put a military ship in every strait, and we can't enforce it around the world. But instead, we developed an international framework and even though we're not a party to it, Reagan made it customary international law for us, and we led the charge in developing it. And it is something that helps us essentially protect freedom of navigation around the world. And I think that's a good example of the kind of thing that we need to continue to be doing in asymmetric threat areas. Thank you for letting me go over, Mr. Chairman. Well, actually, the, the answers have been very um, 
detailed. Thank you for those. They, no, they've been very good, actually. Uh, Senator Menendez, if you wish to go, I can go to Senator Kane and let you get uh, situated. I'm happy to have Senator Kane go. Sure. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks for having this hearing. It's very well-timed, and this question of, in matters of diplomacy, what are the appropriate roles for Congress and the President, are very vexing. I want to focus on a current example, a very current example. In September 2016, the United States joined with other nations in passing a unanimous resolution at the United Nations. The New York Compact recognized the growing global challenge of migrants and refugees, and it called on all the nations of the world to develop best practices for dealing with the challenge. The Compact is being fleshed out at an international meeting that's being held in Mexico this week. Late last week, the Trump administration announced that the U.S. was pulling out of the non-binding compact and would not participate in the Mexico dialogue to develop better policies for addressing the crisis of refugees and migrants. The asserted reason was that the discussion with other nations, a discussion with other nations on a non-binding compact would invade U.S. sovereignty. I was stunned at this announcement. The migrant and refugee problem in the world is massive and growing. The U.S. has been a leader for decades in this area. There is no invasion of U.S. sovereignty in sitting down and having a discussion about solving a problem. And the Trump administration announcement came during the Christmas season when people around the world are hearing the story about a family turned away because there was no room at the end so their child had to be born in a stable and their subsequent flight to another country to avoid violence. Why did the administration take this step? I want to tell my colleagues what I've learned in the last 48 hours from reporting and conversations from those involved in the discussions. A principals meeting was held in the last 10 days to discuss U.S. participation in the compact and in the Mexico summit. The CIA director, the U.N. ambassador, the Secretary of Defense, and the State Department all initially argued that the U.S. should stay in the compact and exercise leadership to develop the best possible solutions to this current global crisis. But the Attorney General, the Chief of Staff at the White House, and White House Advisor Stephen Millard argued that the United States needed to pull out of the dialogue, not because of sovereignty concerns, but because of a desire to cease participating in an initiative that had commenced during the Obama administration. In the end, the Attorney General and the White House officials prevailed over the wishes of our national security professionals. So I want to ask you this. When an administration takes a unilateral action like this, squandering American leadership on a critical humanitarian and national security question because of a petty political calculation, what should the role of the United States Senate be? Well, it, it won't surprise you, Senator, to, to um, hear that I'm very much in agreement that this is not the right decision. In other words, that I think it is important to engage with your international partners on such a particularly incredibly critical issue that we're facing. And I also think it's fair to say that given the crisis, the migrant crisis that we face today with 65 million people displaced, over 20 million refugees around the world, uh, it's very hard to imagine how on earth we would actually address this crisis on our own. We absolutely need to be engaged with our partners in order to figure this out and work through it. It also is not true that the, um, the UN effort was 
something that we started by any stretch of the imagination. It was something that we, uh, it's true that the Obama administration joined um, in September as you identified uh, the declaration or the, the statement that was made and were intending uh, during that administration at least to engage on this issue. Um, and I think, you know, there's not much you can do, I suppose, from a legislative perspective to force the executive branch to engage on these issues, but it does seem to me it would be worth uh, making a statement to that effect and being as clear as possible in the public about the fact that this is not a, even a substantive issue, it's just a question of not wanting to talk to other nations about what is a critical issue that we can't solve alone. Dr. Bradley. Thank you, Senator. Um, I, I don't want to speak to the specific policy issue of this particular non-binding compact, but I am in agreement with Ms. Haynes that in general, I favor the U.S. staying engaged and uh, offering its very important voice in, uh, on these sorts of topics. It, this example is a very good reminder of how executive unilateralism in international agreements and compacts really generates more unilateralism. So as we've seen before, whether it be the Paris or Iran deals, which were also called non-binding compacts, at least in part, they also set up the possibility of pulling out unilaterally by the executive branch, and we've seen that in the migration compact. Non-binding at the front end, executive participates on behalf of the United States in the last administration. Non-binding means the executive allegedly can just pull us out of the talks now, and it's a reason for Congress to be more involved in all steps because the argument would be much harder to make that the president could then just unilaterally pull out of these sorts of agreements. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Menendez. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Oh, Mr. Chair, could I introduce the UN Compact as an exhibit to the hearing? Without objection. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that providing advice and consent on international treaties uh, and accords is a critical function of this committee and for that fact uh, of the United States Senate and holding a hearing to explore the Senate's role in international accord today, however, seems to be serving mostly as a reminder that we have abrogated that duty at the behest of what I consider a few misguided voices. As a long-serving member of this committee and its former chairman, I regret that some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are driven by an antipathy to treaties and international institutions that ultimately, in my view, undermines American foreign policy. Their belief, that participating in rules-based international order, including international treaties, joining our peers on the global stage to set standards, establish mechanisms for security and economic cooperation and vehicles for approaching common threats from communicable diseases to nuclear weapons undermines our sovereignty is bluntly wrong and it is misplaced. International organizations and treaties are a critical tool of the United States which you can use to further our foreign policy objectives. We utilize treaties and institutions to set the standards by which we would like to see other countries and the global community more broadly operate. Believing we can operate alone in today's world is as foolish as it is impractical. In essence, when the United States unilaterally sets rules of engagement, but the rest of the world is working together on another set of rules, we aren't even playing the same game. If we're not at the table, those who are will write the rules, and they do so at the expense of Americans and American businesses. When I was chairman of this committee, I shepherded through the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, driven by a small number of misguided voices from the right, some of who bizarrely argue that ratifying this treaty would somehow amount to an assault on families who want to homeschool their children. This body failed to ratify that treaty. 
the United States is the world's leader in protecting and having the highest standards for those with disabilities to our federal and state laws, like the American with Disabilities Act. What our opportunity to have uh, ratified that treaty is would take that global standard, be at the table, create that standard globally so that an American living here could hopefully at some point in time travel anywhere in the world and expect that they would ultimately have the same access as they have in the United States. To me, that was the motherhood and apple pie of treaties, and yet we couldn't do it. Similarly, as we see increased piracy and threats to American businesses who rely on international shipping lanes and international waters to conduct their business, it undermines our security and business interests not to participate in the Convention on the Law of the Sea. Being a party to the treaty would enable us to participate in a wider range of interdiction operations, be involved in more port security control, be able to work with our allies to confront China's continuing expansion in the South China Seas uh, if we were a party, among other places. So now that I got that off my chest, uh, let me ask you, Ms. Haynes, uh, yeah, it's been frustrating. Uh, what countries would you say, I think you alluded to China as one, but what countries are taking advantage of the United States' refusal to uh, fully ratify and participate in treaties like the Convention on the Law of the Sea, which you mentioned in your opening statement. And at what expense is, if, if the average American would be listening to this hearing, at what expense does it mean to them? How do we make it, that is, it's not something that's just up here, but actually has a meaning to them? And, and finally, what pending treaties do you believe would best serve the interests of the United States citizens and businesses? Yeah. I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about just how can you change the conversation about treaties and, and really help people to understand the value that they bring to them in their everyday lives. And, and it is when I think about the Law of the Sea Convention, all of the things you mentioned, another thing I would add would be, for example, we can't actually make a submission of our continental shelf, for example, to the Continental Shelf Commission because we're not a party and, that's a, and get the blessing, essentially, of the Continental Shelf, which, again, hampers American businesses because there isn't the sort of predictability, there isn't the you know, international recognition, we're not part of the organization that's making the rules that effectively affect their interests around the world. And even though we're an observer, it makes a difference being at the table as a party, and that's something that you have to focus on. And to your question about other countries that take advantage of it, I mean, I think there's been discussions about Russia, for example, taking advantage of that opportunity um, in the context of, I think, largely pointing out the fact that we're not a party, pointing out the fact that, therefore, our voice should count for less in certain circumstances and so on. Um, and that's true around... Uh, these issues altogether. And it's hard to predict how other countries and which other countries will take advantage of this in the future, but I think you'll see many of them, particularly if we're not in the migrant conversation, we can't actually shape the way it turns out. And that's, I think, where we really lose out, and people should be able to understand that. But I, I would say uh, trying to translate the value that we get out of treaties so that people understand the everyday value is a really worthwhile exercise. Um, and maybe I'll come back to you with some additional examples I, if you I'd, find I'd, that useful. I'd love to hear them because we're, we're going to have to get to a point where it's more than an esoteric ex exercise for the average American so that they can understand what, what's at stake for them. And for me, all of the policy we do here is always how do I get, make it connected to the average citizen I represent. Thank you very yeah. much. Oh, thank you. Senator Coons. 
Um, thank you, Ms. Haynes. Mr. Bradley, for being here. Um, great to see you again. Uh, Ms. Haynes, you mentioned in your written testimony that um, certain Senate rules um, strike you as anachronisms that should be reformed in order to limit obstruction and streamline treaty consideration processes, given the lengthy recitation we just received, um, with which I agree, of the frustrating difficulties in ratification, uh, Law of the Sea Treaty, CRPD, others. Um, what would you specifically suggest we do to change Senate rules in order to address the concerns you raise? Thank you. Um, so in terms of the anachronisms, I'll just mention two that are sort of interesting. One is that you see uh, in the rules explicitly there's the option for the Senate to actually amend the treaty in addition to amending the resolution of advice and consent. You know, it's sort of, it, it never really makes any sense that you're gonna amend the treaty. Instead, you put into the resolution that such an amendment is required before, you know, ratification would occur. But there are a lot of things like that. It's a very old rule and it just doesn't, it's not a very streamlined rule. And the kinds of things that I could imagine changing, but I, I would sort of recommend, frankly, that, uh, you know, brighter minds than I and people who really understand the procedure in a way that would be helpful, you know, would put their thoughts on this. But I could imagine, for example, given that you have only one option for a cloture vote, because cloture in treaties is both on the treaty itself and on the resolution, and the motion to proceed to executive session and on a particular treaty is non-debatable. So you don't have the same thing that you have in legislation where you could have two cloture issues. You only have one. I have thought if you could reduce the hours for cloture, so in other words, you still get cloture, but you know you don't have 30 hours, you have a significantly less uh, hours, would it then change the calculus for the majority leader when deciding whether or not to push through essentially an objection and get to a vote on the treaty? I don't know, and I realize it'll change over time, but it strikes me that it's worth thinking about because it is one of the main issues is that, you know, as, as noted, you have a two-thirds vote. There has to be bipartisan support for the treaty for it to be, a, you know, provide advice and consent. So perhaps a, a, a lower bar for the process would actually make a difference in you're being able to actually move on treaties, because I do think this committee is committed to doing that. I do think it's frustrating when you have, you know, the possibility that one senator can really hold it up in a significant way, and that is largely because it's very, it seems to me, relatively low cost for the majority leader to not proceed in some respects. Correct. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Bradley, in your recent Lawfare article, um, you claim presidential domination uh, of America's shaping and termination of international agreements has a significant effect on U.S. states and private actors. Could you just briefly describe um, some examples, perhaps, of the consequences for U.S. states uh, or for the private sector? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate is how much international law and agreements today matter domestically and not just for the United States international commitments um, many agreements are either directly or indirectly enforceable in litigation or affect the uh, ability of agencies to regulate, uh, including in the private sector. A lot of the agreements that are made under the old statutes um, that might have now are being repurposed sometimes by the executive regulate um, sales agreements, uh, transfer agreements, uh, aid agreements, and the like that often have large effects, obviously, on government contracts and other private sector actors, and a lot of that is managed by the executive branch based sometimes loosely on very old uh, grants of authority. At uh, the state level, uh, international law, of course, is generally binding on the entire country and is uh, therefore presumptively binding at the state 
and local levels as well. It's not all enforceable in court, but it often affects how statutes are interpreted, even uh, with respect to localities. Um, that, one of the reasons for the Senate to be involved in particular, by the way, for these agreements is the federalism side of this. When I testified on the Disabilities Convention, one of the biggest concerns was how do we accommodate the federalism and local state interests for that convention. I thought there were ways it could have been done, and I, there was actually a lot of bipartisan discussion about how it could be done successfully. And when the president is doing uh, these agreements without going back to the legislature, the interests of states and localities are not even considered, whereas uh, states, are, of course, are all represented in the Senate, and that was by design in the founding. Thank you. Thank you both. Great to be with you. Appreciate your input. The chairman's going to be back in a moment, I hope. We'll see. Uh, there's a vote on, and we'll, we'll try to keep the, the uh, meeting going, hearing going. Oh, he's not. Okay. Uh, I was going to, I want you to just put one thing into the record, and that is I've never really fully understood what reservations meant when Congress passed the reservations, or what conditions mean if we were to condition uh, our approval. But I'd at least put that out and appreciate your advice on that. Uh, if you could explain that, so Senator Corker will explain it to me later as I go to vote. So thank you very much. Now, actually, go ahead. With... I'll, I'll go ahead. Thank you. Um, well, the Constitution, of course, talks about the advice and consent of the Senate, advice and consent. And from the early days, presidents, for a variety of reasons, did not heavily seek the actual advice of the Senate. They sought their consent at the end. And one of the things the Senate did actually during the George Washington administration was basically say, if that's how it's going to work, we insist on being able to condition our resolutions of advice and consent. We've had over 200 years of the Senate having this prerogative of being able to consent to a treaty on the condition of removing clauses, uh, amending clauses, having certain interpretations uh, that the executive has to accept, or other declarations such as uh, not having direct enforcement of the treaty in litigation. And I think this is a settled power. So the president usually is the one who benefits from all this historical practice. The Senate, in this instance, should benefit from a long tradition of having the ability to limit its consent. And it's understood if the president ratifies a treaty, after that happens, the president has accepted the conditions in the advice and consent resolution. And presidents have generally agreed to that. And the courts uh, really uniformly have given effect to the Senate's conditions. So this is an opportunity for the Senate. If it has concerns about what the president might do under a treaty, I, I think it's fully within the prerogatives of the Senate to add conditions to the resolution. Thank you. So I think both of you have spoken, and you know, really the Senate, uh, because of the way we are not functioning, I mean, just in all honesty, for many, many years, I, I, we passed the, uh, I guess, the START Treaty. Um, when was that, in 2010? Was, was that part of your work here? Yeah. No, sir. I had already left the committee yeah. at that time. So, you know, we, we uh, actually, I was a part of that, helped write the, the RUDs, and, you know, to me it was an important treaty to pass. I think it's been good for our country. Um, and, uh, and it was very controversial, but it happened. Um, we may have done a few things since then, but actually, you know, because of the Senate's non-function, uh, Presidents have, have, have you know, chosen different routes. Uh, part of it, too, though, in the, in, in the case of Iran, part of that was, too, that the president um, 
took actions that, because I don't think he believed he could, uh, there wasn't there wasn't a majority of the Senate that would support what he's doing. So there's, you know, there's cases where the United States Senate is not functioning and presidents don't want to come to it, they don't want to go through the hassle, but there are also times when presidents act in that way because they don't believe the majority of the Senate is with them. Would you agree? And so in both cases, I mean, the Senate does damage to itself by not being willing to take up treaties. A tax treaty is the, the you know, one that's prime. It should take no time on the floor. We have one member who opposes. On the other hand, there are times when the president uh, can abuse his authority. Uh, I say that with the light terms, abuse. Uh, the president can abuse his authority by doing things that, are, that they know are not uh, majority, uh, majority proven. Would you like to speak to that in any way? I think it's absolutely true that there's um, times when presidents make a decision not to take the hard road that is sort of the traditional route and instead uh, take an alternative option. I think it carries costs with it, both in terms of the relationship, but also, frankly, in terms of uh, what they can do in that um, agreement or in that political commitment just by its very nature. In other words, I, I think uh, part of you know, the flip side of what I was saying earlier, which is to say that I believe there are real costs if the, pre if the Senate is unable to actually provide advice and consent to treaties, um, because then it means there are a lot of things that won't get done. The flip side of that is also that when presidents, basically in the executive branch, takes another route, those routes don't have all of the bells and whistles that an advice and consent treaty has. And so, you know, if you're doing it as a political commitment, it means that there's not a legally binding obligation on the other party either, right? And so, you know, to the extent that we want that in our foreign policy, then we're not getting that. And if it's not, uh, you know, if it's an executive agreement and it's not an advice and consent treaty, there may be some things that we can't put into that executive agreement because we know that they are things that warrant advice and consent through the Senate. So I agree with your general proposition, and I think there's cost for our foreign policy and national security as a consequence of the fact that we're not actually able to work together effectively. So President Obama, I say none of this to be pejorative, it's an observation, President Obama uh, did what he did on Iran. We were successful in the passing ANARA, which took back some of those powers, caused it to be frozen for 90 days, caused us to be able to examine it, and then caused us to be in a position to stop it if we had the votes to do so. But again, it was a non-binding political commitment. Same thing happened on the Paris Accord. Um, and the Paris Accord was put in place. Um, the Paris Accord could not have, you know, on a treaty basis, passed through the United States Senate. Um, and, and it was undone. And it's very possible that the Iran Accord, uh, the Iran Agreement, may be undone in the January time frame. We're working on ways to try to strengthen it uh, from the standpoint of the president. Uh, from his perspective, we're working on ways uh, uh, to, to change things in such a manner that, that maybe that doesn't happen, at his request, I might add. But, but how does that affect when other countries look on? Um, most, of, I would assume that in most other countries, typically we don't have this back and forth. You might share with me whether that's the case or not. But when other countries then see a president entering into a non-binding political accord that hasn't gone through the Senate, they see what happens as a result where the other party automatically 
uh, begins uh, railing against it, like well could happen with tax reform here, right? It passes with only Republican votes, uh, a different different issue. But but how do they view the? How will they begin to view? How are they viewing these non-binding commitments as they see them beginning to be potentially one undone and potentially another one? Yeah, we might split this because I know Mr. Bradley has done a lot of work on wh how other countries approach uh, treaty making and that would be useful. I'll, I'll just give you from my experience a few things. I think one is uh, um, particularly on the political commitment piece that you just mentioned at the end of your question. Uh, I think other countries are extraordinarily watchful of this and I think it will make it harder if uh, if we pull away from our political commitment to Iran um, with them not having violated the political commitment to begin with, I think it will make it harder, for example, when we're facing North Korea and other countries and we're trying to enter into a similar political commitment potentially or any kind of commitment um, if they perceive us as uh, simply... Um, not living up to the terms of what we have signed up to previously. I've also found with other countries repeatedly, they will ask us, what is the process that you are engaging in internally? So even though it doesn't matter from an international perspective, if we do an executive agreement or an advice and consent treaty, in other words, both are legally binding on the United States from an international legal perspective, other countries want to know whether or not we are sending our agreement to the Senate for advice and consent or whether it's getting some kind of congressional approval. And they see that as important because they believe that that is going to be a longer lasting agreement if in fact it sticks. And then finally, I, I have also heard from other countries and when they watch the sort of uh, back and forth here and they see, for example, on the Law of the Sea Convention or other things that we aren't able to get it through after we essentially we initiated the idea to begin with, uh, and we also spent an awful lot of time leading the drafting of it. They will bring that up in further multilateral conventions, um, negotiations. They will say, why do we listen to you anyway, given that when you bring it back, you don't actually get it through the Senate. Now, that's not always a good reason to join a treaty. Obviously, you join a treaty because you think it's the right thing for the United States, and the Senate has to deliberate appropriately. But I think it does make... Uh, it more difficult when you have um, so much of the Congress agreeing with it and just a few members managing to pull it down. Thank you, Senator. Um, so I agree with Ms. Haynes. W one thing that I think we're seeing with uh, more unilateral executive agreement making is just less stable American foreign policy, and that's, I believe, how it's being perceived by the rest of the world. Uh, but there's a more practical effect, in addition to the loss of leadership, it, which is that I, I think the U.S. is having a harder time persuading countries to give concessions in U.S. interests uh, if those countries believe that the stability is not there for the commitments. And that's one reason why they often do at least desire um, the Senate to be involved, because they think those will be, uh, quite rightly, more lasting, stable commitments. Um, another problem, and this is not just true externally, uh, but also inside the United States, I think there's just a lot of confusion about uh, the uh, nature of these agreements. I remember when, the, just to use those examples of the Iran deal and the Paris Accords, there was confusion in Congress and among scholars and the rest of the world about what the nature of those agreements were and confusing statements by the executive about whether they were binding, binding in part. Some of the world had views that they were binding and the administration said they weren't. Um, so there's just a lot of, uh, I think that's a transparency problem as I talked about earlier. As to what other countries are doing, 
Uh, we're not alone. The United States is not the only constitutional democracy facing questions about the role of its legislature in a world in which a lot of agreements are being made and a, a number of countries like the UK are looking for ways to keep parliament uh, more involved and to get it more involved and be more active in the deliberative process uh, because they realize these commitments matter uh, so much domestically. And of course, there's the famous Brexit decision now by the UK Supreme Court that insisted that the parliament have a role in deciding on that momentous decision by the UK. So we're at a time where other democracies are studying this and actually trying to find ways to keep their legislatures involved in the process. And generally speaking, I know you're not gonna be able to remember um, you know, what all of the countries did, but generally speaking, in an accord like the Paris Accord or the, in the Iran Agreement, um, the other countries that were involved in that, how did they interact with their own uh, legislative bodies or did they at all? Yeah, it really depended um, on the particular country and uh, and their relationship with their legislative bodies. And even though, for example, with the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, um, I'm not aware of any country that put that through any kind of legislative process, per se. The, the Iran Accord. Right, exactly. Um, it, the uh, so the, there wasn't that kind of formal thing, but what my experience uh, was was that different European countries talked to people within their parliament more or less, and particularly for the Europeans because they were dealing with the sanctions regime just as we were here in the United States. So I, I, that was you know an area where they needed to make sure that everybody was at least aware of what was happening in that context. And the Paris climate similarly, it's it's different for others. In that case, I believe there were. Um, some, and I'm, I just don't recall right now directly which one put it to a formal uh, vote, but I can obviously bring that information back to you if that's useful. I could add one comment, Senator. I've talked to the negotiators, some of the negotiators on the Paris Accord, and what I was told was that for all the countries that normally require the legislature to participate in treaty making, those countries did have the legislature participate. And if one just looked at the U.S. Constitution, you would think the United States should also be in that category since the process specifies the legislature's involvement. There are some countries that don't uh, have the legislature participate ordinarily, and those countries uh, have a different process. But for those that do, I think they treated the Paris Agreement as they would any other important agreement and had the legislature involved. You know, part of the reason we were having this hearing is um, we, we look at what is happening right now with NAFTA. I know a number of senators uh, met today with the president to, to talk about NAFTA and where it's going. Um, we have the South Korean agreement um, where, you know, I know the president has concerns about the light duty, uh, the tariff on light duty trucks and what that may in fact um, do to, to our own country. Um, and I guess a, a, a part of our, uh, this will be more of a macro question, but I mean, a part of our, our role in the world um, has been our leadership, if you will, on, on international agreements and creating relationships. We obviously negotiated, uh, the, the former president negotiated the TPP, um, and uh, you know, obviously the political climate uh, led to a situation where both of the leading candidates uh, on each side of the aisle condemned it, and obviously um, it ended up not being something that we're a part of. Can you talk, can you step back, I mean, if the obvious is, an, the, the answer is very obvious, but can you step back and, 
you know, there is uh, the world in turmoil. There's, there's uh, you know, the, the kind of movements, if you will, that took place in our country in this last election are taking place, no doubt, in other countries. Um, can you talk just a little bit about your perspective on international agreements in general, the United States' role in those, and, uh, and how you see if that affecting us over time as it relates to our U.S. leadership? Um, thank you, Senator. I, uh, when I first joined the State Department, um, my first job was working in the treaty office and uh, as a young lawyer, and I remember going to multilateral uh, negotiations for treaties. And, uh, and one of the things that was remarkable to me, although I suppose it shouldn't have been, was just how much uh, the international community relied on the United States to draft the first draft of proposals, of treaties, of so much of what we would be doing. And uh, and it really, it's a point of pride in many respects, but it's also something that sort of brings home the fact that we have historically exercised enormous leadership in this area. We have uh, seen so much of our own law internationalized through conventions where we essentially negotiate things that are much consistent with what we do domestically and we've seen the value of it and we show that to our partners and we believe that it is worthwhile on an international basis. And so in many ways, we've really just uh, leveraged our own success and prosperity to increase it through the international sphere. And I think it's an extraordinary thing to look back on how many treaties that are major multilateral treaties that we really were the instigators behind, not the least of which is Love the Sea Convention that we're not actually a party to. And um, and I think now it's changing. I think that uh, the you know, the last decade or so has seen a real shift in the conversation on treaties and on international law. I think that um, the American public has, uh, is not often being reminded of the value that international law and that treaties bring to them. And I think it's made it more difficult for members of Congress to, uh, to take tough positions on what are often very complex issues in the context of international agreement making, um, you know, as, as Mr. Bradley said, there's often a lot of confusion about these issues, and they're very tough, and these agreements are very long, and they're uh, complicated, and it's, um, it's a space that I think is just becoming uh, less um, uh, sort of honest, and, you know, it's uh, less possible for us to have a real public dialogue that actually gets to the real issues. And I think the consequence of that are that now when we walk into the room, if we're even invited, that we're not going to be looked upon to essentially draft the rules. And I think that will make a big difference to U.S. interests in our ability to shape the conversation and ensure that what is ultimately developed is in our interest. Ms. Bradley. Thank you, Senator. Uh, one of my experiences in this area came when I was working um, in mid-2000s in the executive branch, and one of the things that became obvious to me, and still is certainly the case, is you know, the U.S. exists in a very a dangerous world environment, um, security threats around the world, 
uh, still an ongoing threat from global terrorism. That was one of the major issues the executive was focused on at that time and still is. And it was abundantly clear that the United States could not address these dangers and threats by itself and uh, relied on other countries for intelligence, for law enforcement cooperation, for sanctions. And uh, that required working with partners and both allies and other countries who might not always be allies in hopefully constructive ways. And some of that involves reaching agreements that are in the long-term interest of the United States and also taking a leadership position on articulating what the U.S. thought uh, should be the international norms. And I think that continues to be in the United States' interest. The world environment's not any less dangerous than it was uh, when I uh, had the privilege of working in the executive. And so I would hope uh, that both the Congress and the executive branch are focused on the many gains the United States uh, obtains from cooperation and engagement with other uh, countries. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we thank you both for being here. And I know that uh, you know we've relied upon both of you um, to help us through uh, issues here in the Senate in, in years past. And we thank you for coming back today. I, I will say just my observation as a person who's been here now almost 11 years, um, I really don't see, um, I don't really, I don't see anything changing relative to the Senate's ability to, to, uh, we can't even confirm nominations right now. One senator, you know, will have an issue with a nominee. I was just asked coming back from uh, the Senate floor about a nominee. You know, we have one senator holding, can we burn the floor time? Uh, to actually have that person confirmed, and the answer is no, we cannot. So, you know, there's going to have to be a, a cooperative uh, rule changing taking place on the Senate floor. But even if that occurs, honestly, um, the the ability to uh, to deal with major treaties today is is diminished, and I mean that's just where we are as a nation. Um, I, I, st- I think the executive branch um, still will be able to. Uh, to do non-binding agreements and to enter into agreements of the United Nations, which I'm sure you know will continue to happen to a degree, but uh, but but I think what executives have to be careful of is entering into an agreement that they know immediately becomes a a lightning rod for the other side of the aisle. Um, actually, it shouldn't be a surprise that. Uh, you know, the next president running against the policies of the president before, that's typically what happens in elections, is going to upend uh, that when they have the executive pen and are able to do so. And so I think, you know, part of going forward is going to mean that presidents are going to have to think through whether, you know, entering into a accord that actually destabilizes over time because it's, uh, it's not agreed to by the general public here in our country. Um, I think they themselves are going to have to show some, some moderation. Um, but our country is, in fact, I know that um, while we're, we're, we are showing strong leadership in a number of areas, there's no question as a nation we are doing that today. We're doing less of it relative to agreements like this. And I do think over time, uh, while it may play well today, I think over time it's going to hurt Americans, it's going to hurt our standard of living. Certainly, it's going to hurt our standing in the world. We thank you both for being here today. Uh, People are going to have questions uh, through the close of business on Friday. I know that both of you have other work that you're involved in, but to the extent you could answer them fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. And uh, with that, again, thank you. The meeting is adjourned.